or good morning. Let me pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we, we ask, please, that you might uh, let this time be a great blessing for us. Uh, scattered as we are, uh, please um, draw us to yourself. Uh, give us new hope. Uh, help us have strength in the midst of all that's happening. Uh, and please, we pray, uh, do great things amongst us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, what do you do when God seems hidden? What do you do with the fact that God seems like he's not there? I mean, there are lots of people who claim to see him and feel him and hear him and have miracles, extraordinary things happening all through their lives and so on. But the vast majority of us live life without having any amazing miracles. Uh, most of us just get on with our lives without hearing voices, without having any visions, without seeing anything extraordinary. It's all very just ordinary. What do you do with that? What do you do with, so, you, I'm in relationship with this God, I'm a follower of Christ. Does it mean he's not there? Does it mean he's not in my life? He's in the lives of others, but he's not actually in my life. What, what is it with the hiddenness of God? I mean, it is a real thing. Uh, for most of us, it feels as if he is hidden. Now, if you've felt any of this, and many of us have, especially during this exact time in history, I mean, what is happening? Where is God? How come he doesn't seem to be there? You know, we're starting a new book, uh, the book of Esther. Uh, it was mentioned to you earlier. Esther's the second book in the Old Testament, named after a woman. Uh, and it's one of the dominant things about this book, the hiddenness of God. You will have picked this up, but um, throughout the whole of the book of Esther, 10 chapters, God is not mentioned once, not, not at all. He's not referred to. Uh, there's, there's only a hint of prayer. It's not even explicit that people pray to him. Just a whole series of events without God even there, without him being mentioned. And it's an astonishing thing in the whole collection of books that's the Bible, 66 books make up our Bible, uh, the whole thing God has designed to introduce us to himself, to bring us reconciliation and, and restoration of relationship with himself. It's about bringing us to himself. Here's one book that sits in those 66 books that doesn't even mention God. What is it? Well, here it is. That's its great strength. The fact that God's not mentioned is actually the power of the book about God. It reveals to us actually how powerful God really is, the hidden God, that he's not even mentioned. And it makes it hugely relevant for our world, our life, our particular experiences, where he do, does seem so hidden. This is the book that kind of um, illustrates, it gives expression to what my life is like. It is a book that's wonderfully relevant for us. Now, let me give you some comments about the book. So you can see, I, this is going to be a great time as we go through it. It's an action. If you checked out the little podcast, the little picture of Ziggy recounting the story of the book, it's a great one if you've not seen it. This is a great book to be going through. But let me give you, give you a bit of background. You can see it there in chapter 1, verse 1. Get your Bible, open up to Esther, find it in the contents page. It's one of those books that kind of disappears in the midst of many others. But chapter 1, verse 1, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, provinces stretching from India to Cush. 
this is what happened. That, that little phrase, that set of words there, this is what happened, triggers for us. It's a kind of a common way of introducing historical events uh, in the Old Testament books. So what we have here is a record of things that actually happened. It's a story, yes, but it's a story about events that actually did occur. Um, now, it is a history book too in that there's no teaching in it. There's no sort of drawing aside and giving a moral. There's no proverbs that are in it. There's no exhortation. It's entirely devoted to telling a story. It's an action story about events that happened during the reign of the king of Persia, Xerxes. A man actually we know quite a bit about because of uh, extra biblical history. A man called Herodotus actually wrote uh, quite a lot about this period in history back many, many centuries ago, close to the time of it. And we know a lot about it too because we've all seen that movie, 300. Um, just a little fun fact, the king of Persia in that movie, you ought not go and see it, it's violent and horrible. I, was, I took my son thinking it would be a father-child thing and I was traumatised through the whole movie. He loved it but I was in shock. But um, it's in that movie, the king of Persia in that movie is this king, the king Xerxes. And, uh, and I, actually I don't need to tell you this, I, don't, I trust it, don't do your history from movies. It is just interesting that we do know a lot about this particular king. Now, all of this happened uh, in the citadel, verse 2 of Susa. Let me just show you very quickly a map to give you a quick orientation. Uh, where is it? So we've got, uh, you can see Susa sort of halfway down near the bottom, near Babylon, a long way away from Jerusalem. Um, so that's the region that this king ruled over, a massive empire. There's the particular place where it is, a long way away from Jerusalem where much of the Bible is set. So come back with me live and let me give you the timing of this. It's a long time after Ruth. So I, I tell you that because just last week we were finishing off the book of Ruth, so many of you are kind of in the world of Ruth. Uh, let me give you a timeline to orientate that and I think it'll come up beneath us here so what you have is Ruth is back in the time of the back in the time of the judges uh, so sitting about here uh, so what, what is that about 11 1200 BC about a thousand years over a thousand years before Jesus if you fast forward along that timeline you'll get to Esther uh, about sort of 500 years later 480 BC or thereabouts um, so Get this, keep that timeline there. Ruth is before the time of the kings. Um, Esther is after the kings have come and the kings of Israel have gone and the nation has been taken off, defeated in war by Nebuchadnezzar into exile. They've gone into exile, been there for many decades in this Persian Empire, in this Babylonian Empire and then been released again to go back to their homeland in Jerusalem uh, about uh, 60 years before, 50, 60 years before Esther. And many of her grandparents' era went back to Jerusalem, but not everyone did. So Esther and other Jews stayed in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. Now this is about something that happened during the time of Xerxes. And the thing that happened, the thing that drives the whole 10 chapters is a massive threat against the whole Jewish people who are now in this book regularly called the Jews. It's a, now a new term that appears in history for us. 
and it is a massive threat against them. It's the threat of complete annihilation of this people. Grab your Bible again, have a look over to chapter 3. It emerges for us in verse 8. Let me read through that for us. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from other people's and they do not obey the king's laws. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. Sounds similar today, doesn't it? If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, the son of the Agite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. So you come across to verse 13. And dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month of the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. This is the thing that drives the whole book. This is the thing that happened during the reign of Xerxes. And it is a staggering thing, a horrifying thing. It's almost unbelievable. It sounds like kind of a, surely it's fiction, except we're now the other side of Hitler. We have seen the hatred of a monarch, of an absolute ruler against the Jewish people and what that can mean. This is not beyond the realms of possibility. This is exactly what has happened through history. This is real. And notice this is for all the Jews, a decree from, do you remember the geography, from uh, Susa? in Persia is issued what that will have ramifications for all the Jews living in Israel in Jerusalem who have gone back to rebuild the promised land this is the potential for the complete annihilation of God's very own people you see this is the big thing of the book how will the Jews survive now the writer who is writing this account many years after these events uh, is writing to a group of people and writing himself as one who knows they did survive but what the book does for us is answer the question how how is it possible because the Jews had no power and the power they were up against which is the very first couple of chapters of this book it's a clever piece of writing the power they were up against was immense you say come back to chapter one we're going to be looking at the first two chapters this morning to set the scene chapter one is written to help us understand how serious the threat is against Israel what they're actually up against with this law issued by King Xerxes he the man who issued this law is the man who ruled over 127 promises provinces from India to Kush he was perhaps the most powerful ruler of Persia that, that had ever been. And when he throws a party, it goes for 180 days there, verse 4. That's six months. He calls the nobles, the officials, the princes, and they come from all over the world to his party. And historically, actually, out of interest, uh, another fun fact, this party probably coincides with him 
generating interest for his, uh, his, uh, his battle against Greece, where he seeks to uh, take the war to that side of the world. This is a powerful king. And his word is law. His word is law, which is unchangeable, unbreakable. And I would suggest to you, I think that's one of the reasons we're told about the episode with his wife, from verse 10. So on the seventh day, when the king Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, this man's drunk, he commands the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Here's his trophy wife. And he wants to bring her to parade her before his drunken mates. So they go and call her, and verse 12, she refuses to come. The king became furious and burned with anger. We don't know why she refused to come. We don't know if it's because she was a woman of great dignity and self-respect and so wouldn't be seen in that context, quite rightly, or whether it's because she herself was very proud. We don't know, we're not told. But what is ironic, and I dare say the writer wants us to see this, what's ironic is that he's the great powerful king who rules over all the world, but he can't command his wife, he can't rule even his wife. But he is, chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, furious. He burns with anger. Now, she had her moment, but she was no equal to her husband. And after consultation, the king, King Xerxes, forbids her from ever setting foot in the throne room again. He casts her off. His command is the power in the world. And his power, great as it is, is a fragile power. Now, which I think makes it all the more terrifying. I think this chapter is helping us see that what's against Israel is... You see, his power is fragile, it's terrifying because of that, and it's an insecure kind of power. I think also this is the reason for, this explains the set of decrees that come out against all the other, royal, other, other families in his empire. He, um, he decrees, uh, all the way down there in verse 22, the end of the chapter, he sends dispatches to all the parts of the kingdom, to every promise, pro province in its own script, to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native language, controlling the, controlling the language of the household. Every man should be the ruler. Uh, he issues a decree that they rule over their wives. Now, I want you to get the sense here, I'm casting this decree negatively. I think it's evidence of his power but the fragility of his power, the insecurity of his power, the danger of his power, actually. Now, I'm doing this deliberately because I think it's unavoidable that his decree isn't a model for men and women and their marriages everywhere. It isn't some God-given subtext of, this is how marriages ought to be conducted and the Persian king got it right. This is not the case at all. And it is worth just spending a moment here this is simply historical reporting. Very often the Bible, and I think it's misunderstood often at this point, very often the Bible just reports what is without telling you what ought to be. I mean, after all, it reports the, the sayings of Satan without any endorsement of them, of course. It's just saying what is. 
And three things at least tell you that this decree uh, is not a good decree. First one is the king issuing the decree is a brute. He's the enemy of Israel and he's not one that anyone should emulate. And when he calls for his wife, he does it in the midst of drunkenness, uh, drunk over his own power, drunk uh, parading his objects of, of power, and he sees his wife as just one more object. This is not something to model or follow. And his decree is driven by anger. It's fueled by fear of the men of the court over the other families. This is insecure fear and power gone to seed. There's the first thing. This isn't, this isn't something to follow. This is given by a man who is no one to emulate. Second is the teaching of Jesus. Who in Matthew 20 explicitly critiques this exact king. Or kings exactly like this. He says there that you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over. You see, Jesus is not against leadership and authority, but what he's against is exercising that in a way that lords it over, that dominates people by its power. Rather, he says, if you're to be great, you must be a servant. Jesus himself is the model of that, who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Third, the teaching of the Bible on husbands and wives is at complete odds to this picture. Husbands are to love their wives and lay down their life for their wives, not dominate. You see, this is a record of what was, not what ought to be. And what was, was a king who was an absolute monarch and an absolute brute, and absolute in his power, who treated people as commodities, who isn't driven by principle and justice, but by whim. You see, the scene is set. What hope for Israel? After this man issues a decree for their destruction, without a care for the consequences of his destruction, with a decree that is established as the law, verse 19, of Persia and the Medes, which cannot be repealed. How do you break the unbreakable law established by this despotic monarch? That's the scene set. But notice, right here, in the midst of the revelation of this great king's power, is the beginnings of his undoing. This is beautiful. The storytelling is so clever. The, the event, the storytelling is clever because the events are so cleverly managed. You, you, you see, the, the removal of Queen Vashti, this Xerxes queen, the, the removal of this woman reveals the king's pride, his power, his pettiness, right? Yes. But it also leaves him with a vacancy. He now needs to replace his queen. And so enter... The two main characters who will be the very means of his undoing. Esther and a man called Mordecai. Chapter 2, verse 1. Later when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. And so they proposed a search to be made for a beautiful young virgin for the king. They proposed the search beyond for a replacement. Three conditions. She be young, 
beautiful and a virgin. Now, you've seen the TV show The Bachelor and you ought to repent of it straight away. It's a horrible show. I just can't believe in our day and age such a thing exists. But what you have here is proposed, the early proto-version of The Bachelor, run for 12 months, where the king has a harem of women waiting on him for 12 months trying to win his affection. Just as offensive as Bachelor is today, so that was then. And so we were introduced, chapter 2, verse 5, to Mordecai. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. He, verse 6, had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So this is, again, connecting back into our history. Do you remember we mentioned... Uh, th th this region of where they're at is after the kings have come, the kings have gone, the, the nation of Israel has been defeated and destroyed, carted off into exile. Well, Mordecai is one of those who also was carted off into exile. Well, verse 7, Mordecai is a kind man. He has a cousin who he brought up because she had neither father nor mother. He had a cousin who was orphaned as a young child and he brings this young woman into his household and raises her as his own daughter. He's a kind man. And so we meet Esther who is beautiful. She had a lovely figure and Mordecai had taken her on as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. But the text is very quick to tell us too that she had personality and it does it a couple of times. This is an important feature, verse 9 and verse 15. This woman, when she's placed into the house with all the other contestants, wins over the housekeeper, uh, woos him. She's, uh, verse 9, pleased him and wins his favour. But verse 15, Esther wins the favour of everyone who sees her. Dare I say she is the complete package. If you're after the complete, well, you're after a package that includes all those things. If you haven't read Proverbs, where beauty is fleeting and charm is deceptive, but a wife, a woman of noble character is more to be desired. Well, a pagan king had not read that proverb and didn't care about it. What we're being told here is he was a woman that fitted everything he wanted. Now, two things now happen, which are critical for everything that follows through the book. Here they are very quickly. Verse 17, Esther wins the competition. He, she wins the king's heart. Verse 17, the king was attracted to Esther more than to any other woman, and she won his favour and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Esther has now become the queen. Second thing that happens, verse 21, Mordecai discovers a plot while sitting at the king's gate. He overhears a couple of the officers of the king who want to uh, assassinate the king. Not, his, not all is good in the empire of Persia. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told his daughter, Esther, who he talked with every day, who happens now to be the queen. 
who tells the king. And so because of this, Mordecai gets into the good books of the king, literally. All of this was recorded, verse 23, in the annal, the book of the annals, uh, in the presence of the king. Now those two pieces will turn up later to be crucial events that resolve the whole tension of the book. And so chapter 1 and 2 finish. Now the story is only just getting started. We haven't got to the great terror of the king's law to destroy the Jews. That comes in chapter 3. We've anticipated it. But in history, that hasn't even emerged yet. We don't even know that's about to happen. But what we're seeing before that's even happened are the pieces falling in place, even before the need is there. So for us, so far... Well, let me give you, I think, three things. I haven't actually counted them, but let me give you three things. First one, there are some obvious warnings in all of this about power and its exercise, the way it's exercised, the danger of power gone to seed. Can, can I just very briefly, just beware the love of power. We've talked about, we talk about this often, but don't despise any exercise of the use of power. Uh, we all have power in all kinds of different ways. You, you know, there's a kind of a modern movement, this is why it's talking about, this is a modern movement that's seen how power can be abused and used badly and has decided the answer to our society is to get rid of anyone who has power, to get rid of power from anybody, so that no one has power. That is naive and foolish and actually unhealthy. Power always exists and it always exists in people's lives differently to others because there's all kinds of different power. There's positional power, there's physical power, there's moral power, there's informational power, there's skill power. People have different information, moral, position. All of these things create power differentials which are real. You can't get rid of these things. We ought not get rid of these things. Don't buy into the foolishness of the modern world. The key is to not love power and to not use power to lord it over others. Use it well, whatever power you have. Embrace the teaching of Jesus that you are to be great by being a servant with your power. There's a lot here about power and the dangers of power and so on. But that's not the main thing. The big thing is the second thing. You see, God is not mentioned once. But but you cannot read the book and not sense his brooding power behind every page. Every chapter, every incident, you sense that he is there. Have you noticed, like in Ruth, as you go through Esther, how many times there are the it-just-so-happened moments? You know, the, the king's pride means he throws off his queen. So he just so happened to need another queen. Uh, Esther has lost her parents, so just happens to be an orphan. Mordecai just so happens to be a kind man who brings her in, and Mordecai just happens to be connected sufficiently to royal things to know what's happening and connect to his daughter, his adopted daughter, who is beautiful, just so happens, and she just happens to win the favour of the king, and he just happens to be overhearing a plot who just happens to have an adopted daughter who's now the queen, who talks to her every day so that it now gets in the book of the end. So many just-so-happened moments. Passages riddled with them. 
And so it's unavoidable that behind the foolishness and the pride and the, the seeming random circumstances of all of these events is the hidden hand of an all-powerful, purposeful, sovereign God who rules every moment. You see, this is a book about God. You get that, yeah? But it's the most astonishing book about God because he's never mentioned. Xerxes is mentioned over 100 times through this book. God is not mentioned once. But who is the great power behind this book? It's not Xerxes. And that's the message. And it's driven home by the fact that God isn't mentioned. It's the lack of his mention that multiplies the sense of the power that he has. It's a power that doesn't even need to be paraded. That is invincible. That, that is all the more supreme for its subtlety. And it shows the great truth of Proverbs chapter 21. That the heart of the king is in the hand of God who turns it wherever he wants, like a river course. This book is about that God. Don't stand against him. Don't imagine that you can live your life ignoring him. He upholds your every moment, your every day. He is working everything towards his allotted end. Everything in existence will come again before the present visible rule of God. Are you ready for that day? You will not, I will not escape. This God cannot be ignored. He cannot be thwarted. He cannot be undone. He is God, we are not. He will bring history to its appointed end and we all will stand before him. Are you ready? There's only one way to be ready. And that's by the grace that this God has provided for us. Because here's the last big thing. This all-powerful God goes before us and our need to resolve it before we've even got it. And he does it in a hidden way. You see, it's not till chapter 3 that we see the problem, that the problem actually emerges, the decree to destroy all of Israel. But the book starts with chapters 1 and 2 to demonstrate for us that years before, time before, months before that decree is ever issued, God has already, God has already prepared for it. God has put in place the resolution of it. You see, the writer knows what's happening. God has gone before his people, protecting his people, meeting their need before it was even a need. Such is the greatness of God. And you know, uh, his protection of this particular people matters to him. He chose them, the Jews. He chose them many centuries earlier. You get it in Genesis chapter 12. 
that he chose their forefather Abraham and, and said, I'm going to make you a great nation, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, and I'm going to put my affection on you uh, so that uh, I will bless you and make you great, and whoever curses you, I will curse. It matters to God that this people are guarded and protected, and guard and protect them he will. No force in heaven or on earth can undo his protection. But that promise is in Genesis chapter 12 had another little piece to it. It had the piece to it which was, and through this people he'll bring blessing to the whole world. He needed to protect them for his great purpose of bringing salvation and deliverance to us before we even had the need of it. He worked through this people to guard them for every opposition, to bring them safe. Because from this people came a child, the child of Ruth and Boaz. A child from this people Israel, who would be born the Lord Jesus Christ, who would die the most gruesome death under the hidden hand of God, which no one could see, the great victory of God in his death. A victory that would pay for sin, destroy Satan, undo death and make it possible for repentant sinners to be forgiven and reconciled back to this God and God moved through all of history to make this deliverance possible before we even needed it before I before any of us existed God had preferred our salvation do you know just a small that thing you're going through now that horrible circumstance. God has already put things in place before it started to bring good for you out of that grief. He's that God. He goes before us. And He has gone before you in your life in the midst of your greatest need, which is salvation and reconciliation with Him. He's gone before even there. And in hindsight, you'll see it. If you are someone who has come before this God and bowed the knee and thrown yourself on the mercy of Christ and found salvation in Him, if you're someone who has done that, just take some moment today to reflect back on all the incidents that occurred in your life that brought you to that place. All the seeming small, irrelevant coincidences. Think back through all those moments and know that it was God at work preparing you for that moment of your reconciliation with himself. God in his kindness. But notice in all of this, he does these things in a hidden way. You see, the key actors in this drama of Esther didn't know what God was doing in their lives when he was doing it. Esther didn't see the hand of God in her life. She's an orphan. She's lost her parents. She's living with the distress and grief of that, not knowing that God's purposes were working through even all of that. She had no idea. She had no vision that told her this is what's happened. No word from God. She was, God was hidden. Mordecai, in his act of kindness and his integrity, had no idea that God was working through all of that. In those moments of their lives for many years, you can imagine them asking, where is God? Why is God doing this? There's years of silence. And in fact, there's no evidence at all in their lives that they get any 
word about what's happened. But here's the thing. This is normal Christian living. The normal Christian experience is the invisible hand of God. You know, many Christians are desperate for certainty. They want to, they want to, have, um, they want to live by sight, not faith. Do you, do you see? They, 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 want to, they want to be certain that God's there and the word of God about him being there is not sufficient. So they look for evidences all the time, for signs, and sometimes manufacture them. Look for a, a touch, a voice, a miracle. And, and they hear others talk about these signs of God's presence in their life and they hanker for them as well because they feel insecure. Where is God? He's hidden in my life. And they read through the Bible of all the miraculous experiences and moments that occur. And led, they're led by some to imagine that that's the normal Christian life, to have these extraordinary things. You pray and, this, and they live with this great insecurity. But here's the thing, those moments were just moments in history. In the midst of decades and centuries where God just appeared hidden like the life of Ruth and Esther and Mordecai and Boaz and again and again years went by without any evidence except God was there God was in their lives working and moving sovereignly guiding their steps now, how do we know that's the case? How do you know it's the case? Two things. Because of the word of God and the promise of God. That's one thing. And hindsight. The word of God, Genesis 12, said, I will protect my people. And so this people in Mordecai's day weren't just any people. It's the fulfillment of the promise of God that they be protected. And hindsight. We look back and see God did exactly what he promised. And those two things work together to build our faith that he is there, though we can't see him. How do you know God's in your life? The promises of God and hindsight. The promises of God, which are actually bolstered by the history of the Bible, showing you the promises work again and again and again. He has set his affection on you. If you have turned to him in repentance and faith, he has promised to work everything together for good. This is the God who, when he promises, has the power to fulfill it. The word of God says he is in your life. Believe it, trust it. But hindsight can help bolster and confirm that faith. Because you can see through the weaving and twisting of your life how God has been at work through his hidden hand. Can I encourage you today, during lockdown, to actually pause and think about what are the ways throughout our life, your life, you have seen the hidden hand of God at work. It's not looking for the miracles and the extra, but you can see the things and give thanks give thanks it'll help you lift up out of any stress and difficulty you're facing it'll help you lift your sights and don't chafe under the ordinary it's how Ruth lived it's how Boaz lived it's how Mordecai it's how Esther lived it's how most of God's people have lived through history the ordinary is to be seen with eyes shaped by the Bible 
to see the extraordinary hand of God in it all and to give thanks. Do you know, I think this matters most right at the moment in COVID, Afghanistan, the circumstances we're in, church. Do you know, I've been preaching this sermon to myself for quite some time. We look at the circumstances and wonder where God is in the lockdown, what seems to be devastating church life and the work of God amongst us. Where is he? He's there. He promises to be there. And hindsight tells me he has always been there, guarding his people. And he will guard us for his future. He is at work and he will do something beyond what we could hope or imagine. We trust him for the future and don't lose heart and continue to cling to him wherever he takes us. The Lord is our shepherd. We shall never want. He will take us through even the valley of the shadow of death into eternity with himself. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the great promises that you have made, that you have assured us you will be at work in the midst of our lives, working good in every circumstance. We thank you for that. We thank you for hindsight that we can look back and see the history of your dealing that proves this again and again and again. And we pray, please, that you might then give us great heart, that you might cause us to reflect in our own lives and give thanks for the way you have been at work, though hidden, and that we might not chafe under the ordinary, that we might delight in the word, your word, that makes such great promises, the promises of a God who is so glorious and sovereign. And pray, please, that you give us great heart. In all of this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.